You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we come before your word because it is our desire to know more of you, and it is through your word that we come face to face with who you are and how you work in history and how you work in our lives. We desire to see more of that in order that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we commit this time to you and pray your blessing upon your word as we study, as we look at it and see what it has to say to us. We pray for understanding and a blessed time together in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, you will notice that we are beginning this morning the beginning of Acts chapter 25. So you'll need to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 25. And you'll probably be getting a sense that we're almost done with the book of Acts, right? 25, 26, 27, 28, only four more chapters. And we get to the end of chapter 24 and we get to the beginning of Acts chapter 25. I told you last week that there is a date that you needed to write down in the margin, 60 A.D., because that is where we're at in the chronology, 60 AD. I also told you last week about another book of the Bible that was written during the book of Acts, and I told you where to put that. If you weren't here last week, then that's what you missed. You see, we, whenever you're not here on a Sunday, we have ways of trying to make you regret that you weren't here for something. One of them is to give you little pieces of information like that. Another one is to use you as a sermon illustration. No, I really don't do that. The lawyer said to stop, and so we've stopped doing that. Acts chapter 25 is the beginning of the fourth from the last chapter in the book of Acts, and that is where we're at this morning. 60 A.D. is the date, which means that we are only two years away from the end of the book of Acts. Now, not two years of my preaching, but two years in Paul's life, because the book of Acts ends about 62 A.D., or just toward the end of 62 A.D. We're actually only about six months away from being there with the preaching through the book of Acts. Now, to sort of introduce sort of a little gray cloud here for a second, 60 A.D., we're two years away from the end of the events in the book of Acts. We're four years away from Paul's death at this juncture. So Paul only has four years left on earth, two years after the end of the book of Acts is when Paul was executed by Nero. So keep that in mind. We're sort of we're getting to the end not only of the book of Acts, but we're sort of getting to the end of Paul's life, and things are winding down and you kind of sort of get that sense if you know history, you get to the end of the book of Acts, then you sort of know that we're getting also to the end of our hero Paul, the hero of the book, we're getting to the end of his life. Acts chapter 25, and I want you, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning, and I want to read those with you. Festus then, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, And they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. 
After he had spent more, not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat in the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. Now, Acts chapter 25 contains another trial of the Apostle Paul, and we read further than that, all the way through the end of verse 11. There's something significant that happens in Acts chapter 25. In fact, there's something that happens that is sort of a, a turning point, a major turning point in the whole flow of the book. And it's sort of one of those things that happens in the trial upon which everything else in the book of Acts kind of hinges, and it sort of explains the rest of it. Now, when we got to the end of Acts chapter 24, we saw that the Apostle Paul was kept in custody in Caesarea for how long? Two years. Now, if the Apostle Paul is going to die within four, we might look at those two years and say, what? In the waning years of his life, the Lord keeps him locked up in prison for two of them? Wouldn't it be better to get the Apostle Paul out in circulation amongst the people of God on his mission trips to Rome and then to Spain? But there were reasons why the Lord kept him in Caesarea for those two years. And and I want you just for a second, just sympathize with the Apostle Paul. Do you know what being locked up under custody for two years does to people like Paul? Paul was not the type of person who sat anywhere for any length of time. Do you get that impression as you're going through the book of Acts? The Spirit of God said in Acts chapter 13, Set apart for me Saul and Barnabas to the work for which I have called them. And boom, they're off. And they go on that first missionary journey. It's activity. It's one whole year. Planting churches, training elders, discipling men of God. They arrive back in Antioch just long enough to update the church. They spend the winter there. And in the spring, Paul gets restless and says, Let's go back and visit the brethren. Off they go again, second missionary journey, and they go off into Asia. This time it's a longer journey, a bigger journey, more people, more activity, more busyness. He lands in Philippi and Thessalonica, stops in Ephesus on his way back. He gets back to Jerusalem after the second missionary journey. He's there just a couple of days, updates the church, goes to Antioch, updates the church. Off he goes again. Third missionary journey all the way through Asia. He stops in Ephesus for two years and teaches and preaches. And he's busy there working and ministering and traveling and dealing with that Corinthian disaster in the church there. And he gets done with that and he decides he's going to take up an offering. So he travels through Macedonia and Achaia, visiting the churches there, taking up an offering. Off to Jerusalem he goes. He gets back into Jerusalem. And what is his goal? I'm going to drop off the offering. I'm going to, I'm going to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And then when I'm done... Off to Rome, from Rome to Spain. But he's arrested in Jerusalem. And in two weeks of activity, he lands in Caesarea and he's there for two years. Nothing. You know what that does to people like Paul? One month goes by. Two months goes by. Three months goes by. Four months goes by. Come on, Lord, you said, as I've testified for you, Jerusalem, I'm going to Rome. It's four months now. Five months, six months, seven months. Restless. Wouldn't you be restless? People like Paul go nuts when they're kept up in captivity like that. And what happened during those two years? Luke just breezes right over two whole years in the life of one of the most significant Christians ever to live with these words, but after two years had passed. I feel robbed. What was going on during those two years? Paul is in custody. And Felix was bringing him in quite often just to converse with him to try and get a bribe out of him. But other than that, there's just nothing of note for the Apostle Paul. If you were Paul, you'd be saying, Lord, now would be a good time to get me out of Caesarea. Let's go to Rome. 
Let's get on with this. You promised Rome. Rome has been on my agenda. I want to go to Rome. Well, now is a good time. And so the Lord says, Felix, takes him right out of power, puts Festus in, and off we go again. That's Acts chapter 25. Now, there's something significant that happens in Acts chapter 25. It's Paul's third trial. Now, listen, there are four trials recorded in the book of Acts after Paul's arrested in the temple. Do you remember what the first one was? It was his trial before the Sanhedrin. Do you remember that? When Paul said, I'm on trial today for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And everything went berserk there. And Lysias had to jerk him out of the midst of that because he thought they were going to tear Paul apart. That was in Acts chapter 23. That was the first trial. The second trial was before Felix in Acts chapter 24. And it was after that that he spent two years in Caesarea. Acts chapter 25 is the third trial before Festus. And then we'll get to it shortly. In Acts chapter 26 is Paul's trial before Agrippa. So you have before the Sanhedrin, before Felix, before Festus, and then before Agrippa. Those are the four trials of the Apostle Paul. We begin today to look at the trial in Acts chapter 25, the third trial before Festus. And we can divide it up into four things. First of all, in verses 1 to 6, we have the plot against Paul. Second, verse 7, we have the prosecution of Paul. Third, verse 8, we have... I don't know, it started with a P, I think I had it. Here, I don't have it in front of me. Come back next week and we'll all be surprised. We have something else, and then we have Paul's appeal to the... It's his plea. We have his plea, and then we have his appeal to Caesar. Now, the significant thing that happens in Acts chapter 25 is in verse 11. Look at it. Verse 11. If then, Paul says, if then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true, which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. Listen, this is the most significant four words in all of this chapter. I appeal to Caesar. Now we're just going to look at verses 1 to 6. We're just going to look at the introduction to this trial today. And here's, here's, here's something I have to tell you right up front. This is going to be for all of you people who love the historic details and all the stuff that sort of goes into making this all colorful. This is your day. If you're the type of person who took me up on my offer to have a nap last week while we went to the book of Luke, this is your day because you're going to have a nap for the whole message because it's all about introducing this trial. There are things that are mentioned in verses 1 to 6 that explain that statement, I appeal to Caesar. And listen, you can read it in black and white and say, well, okay, I see that Festus went to Jerusalem. I see that the Jews accused Paul. I see that they had a trial. What's so significant about that? If you miss everything that's going on behind it and everything that's in verses 1 to 6, then you're going to get to verse 11 and say, why would an innocent man appeal to Caesar? Why would an innocent man say, I appeal to Caesar? It is because Paul's situation has taken a turn for the worse. And as you see, as we unfold this, I'm going to sort of put the colors in this for you. You're going to be able to see this sort of in technicolor and moving picture. What's going on here? Because listen, there is a major chess game that is being played. Festus is playing, the Jews are playing, and Paul is trying to play, but Paul is the pawn. You see, he's the reward. And there's this big chess game. There's a give and take going on here between the Jews and between Festus, and the Apostle Paul can see this is not boding well for me. But you're going to have to see that in verses 1 to 6. So let's take a look at it. The plot against Paul, verses 1 to 6. Festus then, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Now, How many of you, when you read the name Festus or hear me say the name Festus, think of that old character in the Gunsmoke series? I think of that too every time I read it. Maybe some of you didn't even think about that. Now you're going to, every time I say Festus or you read Festus, you're going to think of the old character in Gunsmoke. And just for the record, 
I wasn't alive while the black and whites were playing. I saw them on rerun. I had an uncle who wouldn't miss an episode of, of Gunsmoke. This is a different kind of Festus. This Festus is nothing like the character in Gunsmoke that you remember, that you can envision in your mind. This is a different Festus altogether. Now, Festus replaced Felix. Do you remember why Festus replaced Felix? Felix was what? Incompetent. Grossly incompetent. That's why Felix was pulled from power and Festus was put in to replace him. During Felix's rule, Felix was a brutal, bloodthirsty, lustful, greedy, selfish man. During Felix's rule, the whole province had deteriorated to the point where bandits were roaming the countryside, um, raping, pillaging, killing, stealing, all of that, like a modern-day pirate movie was going on through the countryside. There was no order, no justice, no civility. Political assassinations were commonplace in Jerusalem and Caesarea, all over the place. Felix had just let everything deteriorate to the point where it was utter chaos. And the final thing, the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back was that dispute over the city of Caesarea that took place between the Jews and the Gentiles. Do you remember that? We talked about that last week. They were disputing over the the land, Caesarea. It's our city. No, it's our city. No, it's our city. They started throwing rocks at each other. And so Felix said, all right, called in the military. They came in and they squashed that. They killed a whole bunch of Jews, seized all of their possessions, seized their wealth, slaughtered some innocent civilians, and as a result of that, history tells us that the, Rome, the Jews sent a, a delegation to Rome to accuse Felix and to complain to the Caesar, to Nero, of, because of Felix's maltreatment of the Jews, mistreatment and, and oppression of the Jews. And so Nero finally said, okay, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Felix, you come to Rome. We're going to have a little talk with you, and we're putting Festus in power. And so that's what happened. So then we get to chapter 25, and who is ruling? Festus. Now let me tell you two significant differences between Felix and Festus. And by the way, I've been talking about Felix for seven weeks, so if you hear me say Felix and you know I mean Festus, don't giggle and, and don't think that you're confused, it's me that's confused. I'm having a hard time shifting gears from Felix to Festus. But let me tell you the difference, the significant difference between Festus and Felix. Festus was a man of noble birth. He was part of the Roman nobility. Now do you remember the, the background, the upbringing of, of Felix? Remember what was significant about him? He had been a slave, and his brother had been a slave. And they had worked their way up through the Roman system to the point where they sort of got in goody-two-shoes with the emperor, got their citizenship, and because of his brother's influence with Claudius, Felix got assigned as governor of the province over Jerusalem and Caesarea and that whole area of Palestine. That's how he had become emperor. He was a had been a slave. Well, not so with Festus. Festus was of noble birth. Felix had been a slave. Remember it was Tacitus who said of Felix, he had the mind, the power of a king with the mind of a slave. Do you remember that description? He had the power of a king with the mind of a slave. He was an oppressive, brutal man. Now Festus. Festus was a very noble individual of nobility. Second thing that distinguished him from Felix, not just his nobility, but also his ability. He was a very apt ruler. He was a wise, honorable, disciplined, focused, um, self-disciplined, good, uh, just, astute, uh, judicious type of an individual. He was not a man who was ruled by his passions. He was a man who, who ruled himself and he ruled his province well. So he was a very able ruler. In fact, Josephus says that Festus was better than Felix, and Josephus describes him as better than uh, Albinus and Florus, the two governors who came after Festus. So Festus is sort of this bright light, if you will, in a long progression of bad governors over the region. 
Festus sort of stands out. That's the type of guy he was. And when Festus got to Jerusalem, you know what his job was? This is key. His job was to maintain peace. He's showing up and tensions between Rome and the Jews are at an all-time high. There has just been this revolt. There's just been this massive slaughter of Jews. And they have finally pulled Felix out. And now all of the Jews, see the Jews and Felix had this love-hate relationship. They loved to hate each other and hated to love each other. That was their love-hate relationship. And they went back and forth and they detested each other. Well, now anti-Roman sentiment, hatred for Rome, hatred for their governors, hatred for their rulers is at an all-time high. In fact, we're only six years away from a revolt, a revolt in Judaism that would result in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Only six years out from that. Things could not be worse. Everything has deteriorated so bad under Felix that when Festus steps in, here's his job. His job is to establish control, establish rule, suppress rebellion without creating more revolts. He has to establish Roman control without sparking another revolt. And he needs to sort of cool down the hostilities that the Jews have against him. He needs to appease them. He wants to be conciliatory. He wants to be gracious. That's his job. And friends, I want to take this opportunity, since I've just contrasted for you Felix and Festus, I want to take the opportunity to apply this for just a second. And this is good, during this, particularly during an election cycle like we're facing. So listen up. We were told during the 1990s that character didn't matter. Remember that? You could be a philanderer, an adulterer, a fornicator, a liar, a sociopathological liar. You could still be a good senator, a good governor, a good representative, or even a good president. Do you remember all that? Personal life, private life didn't matter. It didn't influence how one governs a nation or a country. Now listen, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, and you don't have to spend a whole lot of time in just a little bit of sober reflection to see that that is not true. And what happened here with Felix and Festus illustrates that perfectly. Festus had let his entire administration degenerate to the point where it was utter chaos. Why is that? It is because Felix, I said Festus, didn't I? Yeah. (laughs) Felix let his entire administration deteriorate to the point where it was utter chaos. The reason being is because Felix's personal life was in just that condition. He was brutal. He was bloodthirsty, he was out of control, he was undisciplined, he was selfish, he was greedy, he was lustful, he was in it for himself. And that's how he ruled. This principle applies, friends. You cannot divorce who you are in private from who you are in public. You cannot divorce your private morality from your public morality. You can't do it. It's impossible. Because the two go hand in hand. This is the principle behind the requirement for an elder that he must rule his own family well because if he can't take care of his own family, how can he what? Take care of the church of God. Show me somebody whose whose finances, show me an elder whose personal finances are in total disarray, total chaos, and I'll show show you somebody who will make the same thing out of church finances. If an elder cannot discipline his own children, how can he discipline the church of God? If he cannot direct and lead his own house, how can he direct and lead the church of God? If he cannot oversee and teach his own house, how can he oversee and teach the children of God who are in the church of God? You cannot divorce your private morality, your private disciplines, your private character from your public performance, your public ministry, or your public trust. If a man cannot govern his own finances, his business will be in disarray. If he cannot keep the trust of his own wife, how will he keep the trust of 30 million, 300 million anonymous Americans? It doesn't work. Character does matter. 
That's what you see with Festus and Felix. Felix's moral, personal life was out of control, and so was his entire administration. Festus was not that. He was noble. He had character. He had discipline. You're going to see in a minute that he was decisive. He did not procrastinate. He dealt with things quickly. He dealt with things efficiently. His life was in order. He was a disciplined man. Not that he was a paragon of virtue, but he did not have the character deficits that Felix obviously had. You cannot divorce who you are in private from who you are in public. Show me somebody who's public, whose business, whose outward life is in chaos, and I'll show you somebody whose inward life is in an equal state of chaos. Okay, so enough of that. That's You're my two cents worth on character does matter. It's too bad that it took us till 2006 to address that subject, huh? I was waiting till we got to this passage to deal with that. Look at verse 2, or verse 1. Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. How long did it take Felix, sorry, Festus, how long did it take Festus, having arrived in the province at the capital of Caesarea, how long did it take him to get to Jerusalem? How many days did he wait before he left for Jerusalem? If you're sleeping, then, then this is why you're not responding. Three days, right? Three days. What does that tell you about the man? Did he put things off? Was he a procrastinator? No, not at all. Now, Felix, what do we know about Felix? Was he that type of an individual who dealt with things quickly, dealt with things decisively, dealt with things swiftly? No, at the end of chapter 24, we see that three times Felix procrastinated. When Lysias comes down, then I'll decide your case. And he puts it off. And Paul comes in and he... Felix begins to tremble. Go away for now, Paul. When I have time, then I'll call for you. And he puts off dealing with the spiritual issues. When he leaves office, he doesn't rule on Paul. He wants to do the Jews a favor, so he puts off making a decision on Paul and leaves it for the next guy. He was a procrastinator, not Festus. Look, you're going to see that within two weeks, being in office, Festus deals with the Apostle Paul's case, and it's over. This guy made decisions. He was not a procrastinator. He was quick and he was swift. And he dealt with things quickly because he was disciplined himself. So, What does he do when he gets to Caesarea? Three days. I mean, he hardly has time to make the beds, right? And, and do all the decorating in the White House. He has, hardly has time to do any of that. And he's off to Jerusalem. Why does he go to Jerusalem? Here's why he goes to Jerusalem. The new governor in the province, this is what he would want to do. He'd want to meet with all of the national leaders under his jurisdiction, under his rule. He wants to meet with the leaders of the Jews. Now, they've had problems with the Jews. So when Festus shows up in Jerusalem, he wants to meet them. He's going there to deal with any unresolved issues, to kind of get a feel for what's going on there. They've just had this massive revolt. All Everything's sort of unwound. Hostilities are at their highest. And so Festus is sort of showing up to conciliate them. He wants to do them a favor. He wants to be gracious. He wants to reestablish a good relationship between Rome and the Jewish leaders that he's ruling. He wants that. He wants to hear their side of the story. He wants to be conciliatory. Festus is showing up sort of, if you will, with his hat in his hand saying, we want to begin again. We want to begin afresh. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. You're going to see this unfold in a few seconds. He wants to be conciliatory. He wants to be gracious. He wants to establish a good relationship with the Jews. So that's why he goes to Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem. So the leading man and the chief priest, that's the elders. And you notice that Luke doesn't name Ananias. You know why that is? Because Ananias had been removed from the office of high priest by Agrippa II and replaced with a man named Ishmael. But instead, Luke says it was the chief priests. And here's what we know. Josephus says that Ananias, even after he was removed from office in 60 A.D., 
and was replaced by Ishmael, Ananias continued to exert influence and power amongst the chief priests. And that explains why it is that when Festus came to Jerusalem, the priests as a group, Ananias, of course, probably directing the whole thing, brought up Paul again. Now listen, with all of the chaos that had ensued in the previous 12 months, with everything that was plaguing the Jews and everything that had gone wrong in that amount of time, what is it that they want to talk about? Do they want to talk about high taxation? No. There was economic ruin because, remember, the Depression, Paul had brought back the offering for the saints in Jerusalem because there was a famine. People were not doing good. Economics were in, uh, in, an, in the toilet, in the tank. Bad. Do they want to talk about economics? No. Do they want to talk about Felix's brutal treatment of the Jews? No. Do they want to talk about the revolt? What do they bring up? Paul. Are you kidding me? It's been two years and you can't drop that? This guy's still on the front burner with everything else that's gone on. You're wasting the governor's time talking about some insignificant little minuscule Jewish rabbi sitting in a prison somewhere? This is at the top of your agenda, talking about Paul? That's what they want to discuss with him. That's amazing to me. Isn't that amazing to you? Why is it that everywhere Paul went, there was a riot, and everywhere I go, there's a tea party? Ever wonder that? Nothing ever significant happens around me. Nobody ever, no, things just don't fall into disarray when I show up. Everywhere Paul went, there was a riot. This was the type of guy who just became such a thorn in people's flesh, not because he was a bad individual, but because he was such a bulldog for the truth. And after two years, they can't drop it. They can't let it go. They can't just ignore it. They've got to bring the Apostle Paul right back into it. So first, verse 2 says that the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging Festus. Urging Festus requesting that a concession, that's the translation that the NASB gives it, a concession, the word actually is charis, for, for, it's the Greek term for grace. They were requesting a grace against Paul. Now what does that mean? They were requesting a grace against Paul. The word for charis there could be translated grace. Listen, it could also mean a token of grace, which I think is how Luke uses it here. They were requesting a token of grace from Festus against Paul. Here's what's going on. Festus shows up and says, look, we want to begin again. We want to establish new relationships. I'm here. I'm, I'm different than Felix. Don't hold what he did against me. I want to begin again and start fresh. And the Jews say, okay. There's this one particular prisoner that Felix never dealt with. He's still on your docket. He's still in Caesarea. His name is Paul. You want to begin again? You want to show us your good nature, your goodwill, your kindness to him? then give us a token of grace. Give us a concession. You, you offer to us something that shows that you really are interested in sort of beginning again and winning over our friendship. And here's what they ask him. We want you to bring Paul from Caesarea to Jerusalem so that he can stand trial before you. That's a concession, isn't it? You smell a rat? I smell a rat. Don't you smell around? I've been telling you for weeks that they're interested in one thing, and what is it? Jurisdiction. Remember? That's what they've been after all along. Bring him to Jerusalem so he can stand trial. Now that just stinks. Something's rotten. Something stinks. You can smell it. You can see it. And I think Festus saw it. The reason they want him in Jerusalem is because when they tried him in Caesarea, no witnesses showed up. If they have the trial in Jerusalem, do you think they can get some witnesses there? Oh, people would line up to perjure themselves to get this guy killed. So they want it in Jerusalem. It'll be easier to get witnesses there. But listen, 
They don't ever intend for this to go to trial. Why? Because Luke says that while they're negotiating this with Festus, they're plotting Paul's assassination en route. It's two days' journey from Caesarea to Jerusalem, and they are plotting to have him assassinated. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Have we seen that happen before? We did when Paul was in Jerusalem. Remember the 40 men who said, we won't eat, we won't drink anything until we kill Paul. Well, two years have gone by. I suspect they ate and they drank plenty in those two years' time. But here they make the same sort of scheme, the same plot, but this time it's without the oath. Well, we'll kill him before he ever gets to Jerusalem. But if that's foiled, they've got a backup plan. They'll get him in Jerusalem where they can bring witnesses against him easily to perjure themselves, and then they'll have jurisdiction over him because in Jerusalem, for violating the temple, they could do what? They could kill him for that, couldn't they? And they know that. So if he does manage to get to Jerusalem, if the plot to kill him foils, they've got a good backup plan. They've got witnesses. They've got him where they can kill him. They can assassinate him. And that's their scheme. Now, I think Festus smelled a rat, too. I think he did. If he was in Caesarea, if he was a typical Roman governor, here's what would have happened when he got to Caesarea. He would have said, okay, what is left outstanding from Felix's administration? And his assistants and everybody would have said, okay, you've got X number of prisoners in prison. Here's their case. Festus, knowing that he was going back to Jerusalem, would have taken Paul's case file. He would have read up on it. He would have read Lysias's letter where Lysias said there was a plot on his life. And he would have read up on Paul. He would have found out about what was going on, the accusations made against him, whether there were witnesses at the trial, would have read the transcripts from the trial. All of that was a matter of public record in the Roman system. He would have read up on Paul's case file. And he would have been at least remotely familiar with that. And then when he arrived in Jerusalem, one of the very first people that that Festus would have met with was Lysias, the commander of the cohort in Jerusalem. Do you remember Lysias? He was the one that arrested Paul and had him shipped off to Caesarea. Festus was Lysias' direct superior, so he would have met with Lysias. And he probably would have said, what is the deal with this Paul guy back there? I saw your name in his case file. And Lysias would have said, this is the guy we arrested. They were trying to beat him to death. And then when I heard there was a plot on his life, we shipped him off to Caesarea. And so then when he meets with the Roman, the Jewish leadership, and they say, we would like you to transport him again. Festus can smell that coming a mile away. Last time you asked us to transport Paul, you were planning an assassination attempt on him. Maybe he heard of the assassination, because look at how he deals with it. Festus then answered, verse 4, that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. That's kind of a gracious way of saying, look, he's, he's in Caesarea, and I'm on my way out of here. Now, I want you to understand what their request means to a Roman official. Listen to this. What they're asking is for Festus to take his tribunal, his bema seat, his judgment seat, and move that all the way from the capital of Roman power, the center of Roman power, to the center of Jewish power, Jewish culture, and Jewish influence. They're asking him literally to bring the whole court down to Jerusalem at their feet and try this on their turf, on their terms, and on their timetable. And Festus would look at a request like that and he would say, if I do this, it is going to weaken my power and my influence and my appearance. I'm willing to make some concessions, but listen, I'm not going to let anybody think that the new sheriff in town takes his orders from the Jews. I'm not going to let anybody think that I do what I do at the beck and call of the Jews. So he says, look, Paul is in Caesarea, right?" In other words, we're going to try this on my turf. And I'm leaving here in a couple of days. He's saying, we're going to try this on my timetable. 
I'm willing to give the Apostle Paul a trial, but it's going to be on my turf, on my timetable. I'm leaving here in a couple days. I don't have time to send somebody to Caesarea to fetch him and get him all the way back here and then have a trial here. I'm not staying that long, but I'll make you a deal. We will give him a fair trial, but we'll do it as a proper trial in Caesarea, the seat of Roman influence and Roman power, and we'll do it on my timetable. I'm not going to appear at the beck and trial of the at the beck and call of the Jews. Now, do you see the chess moves that are going on here? You see this? Festus is coming. He wants something from the Jewish leaders. He wants their help in putting down this revolt, starting a new relationship, sort of quelling all of the violence and calming everything down. And they say, well, if that's what you want from us, you've got something that we want. We want Paul. We want you to bring him here. We want you to try him here. And Festus is saying, man, I, I want to make a concession, but I don't want to give up, I don't want to give up everything. All right, well, I'll make you a deal. We'll give him a fair trial, but it's on in Caesarea. So there's this back and forth. You see that going on? There's this, a lot of political. Everybody's looking out for their own interests. And you see the Apostle Paul's like this volleyball being batted back and forth between the two of them as they're dickering over his fate. But they're arguing over. That's the chess game that's being played. I want you to notice one final observation. Look at verse 5. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. In other words, we'll give him a fair trial. You can bring your chief priests and your witnesses and all the influential man, the elders, anybody that you want. We'll travel down together to Caesarea and then we'll call the Apostle Paul in. They must have taken him up on that because verse 6 says, after he spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea and on the next day, look at the swiftness there. Do you see that? Eight or ten days, he gets back in Caesarea. Boom, he calls trial the next day. On the next day, he sat on his judgment seat, his bema seat, his tribunal, and he ordered the Apostle Paul to be brought before him. The presence of the tribunal indicates this was a proper, official Roman trial. He sits up there and all of his royal regalia and all of the court and the council and everybody around him, all of the officials and the court stenographers and the record keepers and the witnesses, and they all come into the courtroom. And look at this, the Apostle Paul has had 24 hours notice, hasn't he? 24 hours notice. 24 hours to prepare his defense, to call his witnesses, to prepare his case. He's had 24 hours notice because Festus gets back and the next day he sits down and he calls Paul in in front of him. And what do you notice about that? How long has the prosecution had to prepare their case? Almost two weeks. He spent eight or ten days amongst them. They traveled back with him. Notice something else here, friends. I want you to notice that the integrity of this trial... It's been compromised from the beginning. You know how I know that? Eight or ten days, Festus was where? With the plaintiffs. With the accusers. And they traveled back together. It's another two days. Listen, friends, you know that you're in trouble when your accusers and the judge show up on the same bus. You know you're in trouble. You know you're in trouble when your accusers and the judge have been enjoying cocktails and hors d'oeuvres Night after night after night, getting together and talking back and forth and spending all this time. He spent two weeks with their plaintiffs. How much time has he given the Apostle Paul? Not a moment, not a minute. 24 hours notice, you're standing trial. And he brings them in there. In verse 9, I think it is, says that Festus was trying to do the Jews a favor. Now Paul shows up and he knows, my accusers and the judge showed up on the same bus. My accusers and the judge have really gotten to know each other really well, and they bring their accusations, and then Festus says, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before these men? And you know what Apostle Paul knows? 
Impartiality just went right out the window. Impartiality just went right out the window. My hopes of a fair trial have just disintegrated in front of my very eyes because this has been compromised. The plaintiffs and the judge are buddy-buddy. Both of them want concessions. There is political expediency going on between these two parties. And the Apostle Paul can see the noose being pulled in around his neck as he realizes what is happening and what is going on. And listen, folks, he's got an ace up his sleeve. He doesn't want to use it. He hasn't used it up till now. But as he sees the noose begin to tighten, the Apostle Paul realizes, my hopes of a fair trial are gone. And so what does he say in verse 11? I appeal to Caesar. That is why Paul appealed to Caesar. You have to understand all of that to know why verse 11 is significant. You have to understand all of that to understand why an innocent man who had no witnesses against him would appeal to stand before Nero. He had that right. Why did he do that? Because they brought him into the cork and they put a noose around his neck and they tightened it up a little bit and said, you want to go to Jerusalem? Festus was willing to hand Paul over to the Jews for a political reason of gaining the Jews' admiration. And the Jews were willing to take the Apostle Paul and give something in response. And the Jews and Festus have been playing this board game, this chess game, each of them asking for different concessions. And whose life hangs in the balance but the Apostle Paul? And so he says, I appeal to Caesar. That's why I went to Caesar. Everybody catch that? You're going to see how the trial unfolds. You're going to see how all of that develops when we start looking at the prosecution and Paul's plea and his appeal next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for this portion of your word, which to us is so instructive and so amazing at how you work out even the small details of Paul's life and Festus's motives and the Jews' motives to accomplish your will, which was to send your apostle to Rome. Thank you that you oversee all of the smallest details of our lives, that you're providential that you're sovereign, and that you're good. We thank you for this time that we've had, and we thank you for the food that we're about to receive and the blessing that you have given to us in wonderful provision. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.